0: You are listening to Separate and Unequal, shining a light on education in America. Land, where where my
1: is I am bound for the, the promised land.
2: I am bound for the, the promised
1: que estamos acostumbrados a quedarnos callados y no hablar de lo que nos pasa porque creemos que no es porque como hemos vivido con eso toda la vida que no, bebo, no vemos la gravedad de lo que realmente es.
0: In the 1960s, a psychology graduate student at the University of Chicago by the name of Lawrence Kohlberg formulated a theory of moral development based on Haydn's Dilemma. If you've ever taken an Intro to Psychology class, or an Ethics class, you've probably encountered Haydn's Dilemma. It goes something like this. A woman's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. However, it just so happens that a scientist who lives in the same town recently discovered a cure for the disease. He's willing to sell the drug to the dying woman's husband, but he wants a hundred thousand dollars for it, even though it only costs him about a thousand dollars to make. The woman's husband is desperate and does everything he can to scrape together the money. He's only able to scrape together fifty thousand dollars, half of what the scientist is charging. He goes to the scientist and begs him to sell him the drug for the fifty thousand. The scientist says no. He says, It took me years to discover this drug, and the price is the price. Desperate, that night, the woman's husband, Heinz, breaks into the scientist's laboratory and steals the drug. The question is, should Heinz have broken into the laboratory to steal the drug? Why? Or why not? Now, I want you to come up with your own answer for whether Heinz was right or wrong. And while you're doing that, we'll take a step away from Heinz and we'll look at a different riddle. Let's call it Gloria's Dilemma. Our story starts in Guatemala, With a 16 year old girl and her brother.
1: O sea, vivimos un tiempo con mi mamá. Pero, este. We lived for a time with my mother. At
3: the time she had remarried, he would abuse us a lot. And he would deny us food. He would get drunk. And he and my mother would argue. And he would throw things. And he also he had a gun. And, well, my mother would uh, try and hide the gun from him.
1: Y entonces mis abuelos hicieron cargo de nosotros. Mi abuela murió y luego asesinaron my a
3: grandparents her. took care of us, but then my grandmother died, and my grandfather was assassinated.
1: I was at school um,
3: when I found out my, my mother had called the school and told me the news. When I got home, they had already taken him. They'd taken his body. I didn't ask a lot of details, but I did find out that they had cut two of his fingers from his hand, and they had shot him. When my grandfather died, I was 16. We didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that I didn't want to live with my mom because she was with my stepdad still. So after my grandfather uh, was assassinated, uh, my brother and I were living alone in, in the house, and... For several nights after that, um, we would hear trucks um, circle the house, and they would honk their horns, and they would yell out my grandfather's name, Don Ventura, Ventura, um, and they knew he was dead. So this was going on for some time, and then... My father, who was living in the, in the US, um, he got a phone call from someone threatening, threatening to hurt us. And so then my father suggested that we live with my grandparents on, on his side of the family. My grandmother was sick um, and because she was sick she couldn't always be watching over me And, um, and my cousins told me that our grandfather had tried to pin one of them down and to abuse her and he had tried several times. At the time, I was also speaking to my uncle who lived in the States, um, and because he had suffered sexual abuse, and because he understood that our situation, that we were going from house to house, that it wasn't safe for us, he suggested that um, maybe it was best that we, come, that we come to live in the U.S. So my uncle, um, he did tell us it would not be easy, he, he asked us if we were sure, and um, we said yes, and so he hired a guide uh, to take us over the border. It took us about 15 days to cross, to finally get here. Um, We were in in Guatemala about three days traveling. We were always traveling at night. We finally crossed over to Mexico at night and we traveled in, in a canoe to get to Mexico. It was definitely scary because we didn't know where we were. We were in uh, places that were uninhabited. We were in the mountains and in the forest. Um, Eventually, there was a car that took us down out of the mountains. And I don't even remember how long we traveled. But we got to a place where they hold livestock, um, a corral. And so we stayed the night there. We then traveled in a uh, a truck I, that held chickens. Um, and I honestly don't know how long that took either. It just seemed really long that, that time in that um, I was tired and it was dark and we were going through mountains and I was so sleepy. I think I I was starting to sleep standing up. We eventually got to a different location and it was another... Um, place where you hold livestock, uh, another corral. So I think we were there for about two nights. Um, we were near a, a river, or no, more of a, a creek. And there my brother and I got a chance to wash up. And So two days later they transported us to a different location again at night. And this time we were in a, uh, a house that was under construction. So we were two days waiting at the border um, to try and get to to the US, and it was, I just remember that it was really cold. Um, And then next morning, uh, it was early, I'm not sure what time it was. When it was time to cross into the US, we uh, crossed in an inflatable boat, and um, the guide left us there. We definitely were. mean, we were scared because we didn't know what to expect or what was going to happen to us, which is why I think that the guide, um, when he dropped us off at the border, said that immigration would eventually pick us up. We met up with a woman and her two sons. Um, I think we walked for about 15 minutes, and then eventually immigration
2: uh, found us.
0: Listening to Gloria's story about being dropped off at the border might be confusing for some. Why would she get dropped off at the border and walk along the border wall intentionally? That, that seems illogical, right? If someone is trying to enter the country illegally, then why would they try and be caught? Gloria had every intention of being caught at the border. It was always a part of the plan. It's one of the hoops that you have to go through to request asylum. I know that sounds ridiculous, but illogical hoops are part of an inefficient bureaucracy. And our immigration system is an inefficient bureaucracy. Let's look at another parallel, one that might make more sense to the majority of us. Okay. Most of us have experiences going to the Department of Motor Vehicles. It's very rarely an enjoyable experience. We go down to the DMV and we get in line already knowing that we don't need to be in that line, that we need something else on the other side of the building, but everyone gets processed through the line. So we wait our turn for 30 minutes, an hour, however long it takes to get to the front of the line to speak to the individual who then informs us that we need to go to another line. You can't just skip the first line. Mind you, you've got to have your little number to get to the second line. So then we go to the second line and we wait in that for a while to speak to somebody else who then tells us which waiting area we need to go to to ultimately talk to the individual that will be able to help us. Now, at this time, we're assigned usually a letter and a number combination that spans anywhere from one to infinity with absolutely no logic. And we go and sit down in whatever designated area that they've told us and we wait for the individual who can then actually help us. Well, at least we hope that this individual can actually help us. My point being that we've now jumped through a bunch of logistical hoops that don't really apply to us. Nonetheless, that's what you need to do. I give you this example because there's something that you need to understand. In order to request asylum, you need to already be in the United States. So Gloria couldn't go up to the border and simply request asylum. She has to actually be in the United States to request asylum. So therefore, She's got to go into a line that she has no interest in being in. She's got to then enter the country illegally so that she can get in the proper line, the asylum line, to request asylum. Gloria had no interest in being in the United States illegally. But that's still the system that the United States has set up.
3: So after immigration, they um, took our personal items from us, um, and they took us to a place where um, they call it the freezer. I guess maybe because it's so cold there, um, but they took our personal information. They uh, then asked if I had someone I could, I could contact, or and so I had memorized my uncle's phone number, so I, I called him.
1: So after
3: that, they took us to um, the place that everybody calls the kennel. Uh, so we were there. We were able to, to shower and eat, and they, they did give us clothes. Um, we were there for, for one night.
0: There's no way to tell Gloria's story without acknowledging the gravity of what she's just said. When Gloria and her younger brother were first picked up by immigration at the border, they were taken to a place commonly referred to as the freezer. This isn't so surprising. The freezer is a place people crossing the border often speak of. But until I spoke with Gloria, I had never heard of a place called the kennel. I've seen an onslaught of posts on social media describing children being held in what equates to cages. I've also read many skeptical comments wondering whether the images being circulated were in fact real. And truthfully, at least one of the images I encountered was in fact from a staged event and not an actual detention center. But as more and more politicians fight their way into these detention spaces, and more and more of us ask questions, we're learning of a reality that seems difficult to ignore and even more difficult to accept. Gloria was held at a place referred to as the kennel. A kennel is a secure metal pen that holds animals, What is that if it's not a cage? There is a place that exists that houses children in the United States referred to as a kennel. And yes, they are in cages. Gloria was only in the kennel for one night before she was moved to what she likened to a boarding school. She's very clear in stating that the boarding school was nothing like the kennel. Right now, thousands of children have been kept at the border, separated from their parents in places that sound very much like the kennel. These children are being held for an extended period of time with no long-term plan in place to reunite them with their parents or to place them in longer-term care facilities like the boarding school Gloria refers to. The kennels aren't family reunification centers. This is not what they do. Does our system have individuals whose job it is to reunite children and their families? Yes, but you won't find them at the kennel. You've got to get out of the kennel first.
3: And after the kennel, they took us to a different place, um, where there were kids from, uh, other countries. And they would divide us between boys and girls. Um, we were there for 22 days. So we were in a place that was completely different than before, um, I would see him, my brother, uh, when they would take us to go get food or when we would uh, be able to take classes because they would take us to school as well. They would give us one day where we would be able to get counseling. Uh, My brother had his own counselor and so did I and so I would get to see him then. And there was also someone who was working our case and I would get to see him um, when we met with her as well. At the center where we where we were staying, at um, the person who was working our case, she gave us guidelines, uh, gave guidelines to my uncle, uh, letting him know that w- he would have to make sure that we were in school, that we had to find an attorney, and that we could only stay with him. He was our legal guardian at the time. And so since I was coming in in December, so I enrolled in the only school that allowed me to attend.
0: At this point, it sounds like Gloria has received a fair amount of direction and support from the reunification specialist in the detention center. She's got a fairly short list of things she must do. Live with her uncle, stay in school, and get a lawyer. Things should be fairly easy on from this point, right? I mean, they at least have to be easier, right? Well, no. Just ask Dr. Emily Reese. Dr. Reese is an assistant professor at Elmhurst College and has worked extensively with the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights.
4: So unaccompanied youth have really four major legal options for getting some sort of um, legal status in the United States. Uh, The smaller ones are a U visa for victims of crime and a T visa for victims of trafficking. But more likely, youth are either going to get a special immigrant juvenile status if they can prove that they've been abandoned, abused, or neglected by one or both parents, or asylum. So asylum claims uh, the youth needs to prove that he or she has a well-founded fear of persecution based on the membership of a social group. The attorneys that I've talked to already were having a hard time with this asylum claim because asylum, even though youth had very strong cases saying, you know, I was being persecuted by a gang, I was going to be killed, or I was being recruited, or gang members wanted me to be their girlfriend, and so they fled, they have a strong case and good evidence for that. But that case can be difficult to fit into asylum to begin with because it's hard to prove that that persecution was based on membership of a social group. So attorneys for a while have been trying to get around that or work with that by arguing that you know young men in the city in El Salvador between the ages of you know twelve and sixteen, let's say, um, that they are a part of a social group and that social group is being persecuted by. Local gangs, and the government is unable or unwilling to stop that persecution. So, some attorneys were able to make those types of claims as they tried to kind of process these asylum applications um, to varying degrees of, of success. But most recently, you know, Jeff Session has declared that asylum cases will no longer be accepted based on gang claims or domestic violence. And so this is very concerning to me since that was already such a difficult process and such an important reason that youth are coming to the United States. Um, I certainly talk to people with these tragic, tragic cases of young men or young women being sent back to their home countries after a failed asylum claim based on gain persecution and actually being killed once they got back to their home countries.
0: Gloria came to the border and was voluntarily detained by immigration because she wanted to apply for asylum. What you don't know is that this past year, Gloria had a hearing for her petition for asylum and was denied. Given the narrow scope of asylum laid out by Dr. Reese, it's no wonder Gloria was denied her petition. But I wonder, does Gloria know this? I I know she has an attorney, but why was she counseled to apply for asylum versus a special immigrant status visa? Surely, a 16-year-old fleeing abuse by a step-parent, neglect by her mother, and abandonment by her father with no other living relatives to care for her in her home country would qualify? Gloria has filed an appeal for her asylum claim, and is focusing on doing what she needs to do to meet the expectations of the court what were they again? Get an attorney, check. Live with her uncle, check. And stay enrolled in school, check. Well, kind of check.
4: One thing that has really shocked me as I've interviewed unaccompanied youth is how often placements do not actually work. And this was a news story that came up a while ago, and I think people didn't kind of fully understand what was happening. So the government only recently has implemented a system where they actually track what happens to youth after they are reunified with family members. So just recently they started to do like a 30-day follow-up call. Um, And I don't have the number offhand, but most of those calls, they were able to contact the youth, the youth was still there, and everything was fine. There were some calls where nobody answered the phone, and they just never called back, and those youth were considered lost. And so that was part of that news story that we kept hearing about youth being lost. It was simply that their families weren't answering the phone. But what I found in my own research is that, even if you know after a 30-day period, youth are still with the placement that the government found, after a longer period of time, a lot of youth end up leaving that placement. So I have talked to you know youth all over the country in addition to professionals all over the country who've really followed youth as they jump from household to household. Sometimes they jump from household to homelessness. Um, they don't necessarily have the support they need in those families, be it their own you know biological parents or sponsors. Um, Additionally, there's certainly all sorts of issues when youth are placed with sponsors, especially if it's a family friend who's concerned about their own undocumented Mm -hmm. status. So a sponsor might step forward when the child is, you know, in detention, the sponsor might um, sponsor the child um, into his or her home. But once they're required to start taking them to court on a regular basis, some of the sponsors get nervous or some of them feel that they can no longer financially support that child and they ask the child to find a new home.
3: When I was enrolled in school, I I was demoted to grades. And so I started at uh, 10th grade. When we got here, I had to be more responsible for my own self and my own, um, expenses. Because my uncle, well, he had never had any children or he wasn't married and it seemed difficult or complicated for him. So my brother and I both, um, we work and we go to school. Uh, and I have to pay rent and all of my other expenses, including, um, my attorney fees. It's hard because I'm here alone. It's hard to focus on school because I have to provide for myself and, and no one else is going to do that for me. I stopped going to school for a time I, well things got complicated for me and at the same time was no longer living with my uncle. And I just got really frustrated because everything was complicated. Everything was hard. It was hard for me to go to school um, and then immediately go to work and have to get up without sleeping much.
0: Gloria's story is most certainly compelling, but we have little idea how representative it is of the majority of unaccompanied youth who come to the United States. We can suspect that it is, or we can suspect that it is not, but without systematic documented research on the experiences of young people like Gloria, we simply have no idea. You would think there would be a plethora of individuals interested in studying the experiences of unaccompanied immigrant youth, and there is. What there isn't is a lot of research, at least sanctioned research, on unaccompanied immigrant youth. And that is a problem, a big problem, especially in the political context we find ourselves in right now. As a country, we have an urgent need for policy to appropriately address the growing numbers of unaccompanied youth entering the country, especially unaccompanied youth requesting asylum and yet we have very little understanding of what their experiences are like as they move through a system, places like the kennel, or even afterwards once they've been placed with a family member or a guardian.
4: It's fascinating how you have to really work around the system in order to get any information about the system. So you know, my original intention was to actually go back to the organization that I had originally been employed with, and to do work with them, uh, and do my research and in, in ethnography in one of the shelters for unaccompanied youth, or kind of the detention centers, depending on the you know wording you want to use. Um, but the Office of Refugee Resettlement quite literally blacklisted me like told um, that organization even though they had agreed to work with me they already knew me i was their former employee the office of refugee resettlement reached out to them and told them they should not participate or look like they were participating with my research Um, and so then you know that really the idea of doing an ethnography in their organization i had to throw out entirely And so what I tried to do then was to just contact organizations around the country that worked with unaccompanied youth, and I couldn't officially work with any of them, but individuals from those organizations, so individual workers, could talk to me as individuals, not as representatives of their organizations. Mm -hmm. So their official policy is that it's for the protection of youth, um, and there are some, I think, good reasons that they try to limit media and researchers so and this is certainly happening right now Um, part of that is they have these shelters throughout the country where youth stay at and they want those shelters to remain confidential Um, in part because they're worried about human traffickers trying to locate um, victims of trafficking who have been taken out of the hands of the traffickers that's certainly not every kid in these shelters but that is some kids Uh, Additionally they're worried about protesters so I know within the past couple of weeks with uh, the new policies or I guess the now defunct policies but the whole thing with separating kids from their parents there have been protesters actually locating these shelters and then protesting outside of them which I certainly advocate for protesting but I think that it's a little misguided to be outside of the shelters where kids are being held because that in and of itself adds to the traumatic experience of being detained and being separated from family members when you have angry protesters outside because as a child in that shelter, you don't know who those angry people are or what they're yelling, especially if it's not in your language. So the Office of Refugee Resettlement, you know, their official policy is that this is for the safety of the children, Um, but I contend, along with many other very frustrated researchers, that that's actually doing a lot to impede our ability to respond effectively to youth.
0: As a researcher, there's little as frustrating as being denied access to important data that you know already exists by some remotely located governmental goliath, but it happens frequently. Dr. Reese was able to continue her research by working around the barriers put in place by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and in doing so, actually stumbled across a pretty important finding.
4: And I do want to say something about school systems because school systems ended up emerging in my data as something that I wasn't planning on looking at. I was going to look at the legal system and the family reunification system but schools played a very important role for youth that were connected to them um, and if the school itself was committed to these youth. So what I found is that you know, some schools really went out of their way to make sure that unaccompanied youth were successful. Um, they, like I said, individual teachers really stood up for these youth, really fought for the youth in the system. Um, schools could connect with their attorneys to help, provide kind of evidence for the legal case about the quote unquote character of the youth. On the other hand, there are so many schools that are doing the opposite and really actively working against youth. So there's court cases across the country right now for schools that are really actively discouraging if not prohibiting unaccompanied youth from entering the school systems and so those school systems as you can imagine are actually detrimental to youth success as they are really actively working against helping youth become integrated into you know education and into the communities
0: when dr reese speaks about the negative impacts of schools she's referring to school systems policies at the school level district level or even state level A similar theme emerged in the research of Dr. Daisy Diaz-Strong, an assistant professor at Aurora University.
2: My earlier work has focused on what we refer to as the 1.5 generation, Um, right? So first generation are those who come as adults. Second generation are those who are born in the United States. And we have the in-between, which are those that come as children. The 1.5 generation are those that come at the ages of 12 and younger. And so my previous work has looked at the experiences of the 1.5 generation and their experiences transitioning to college and navigating college despite the constraints that they face because of their legal status. As they um, are in high school, they have aspirations that are in line with their peers, right, with their documented and native-born peers. And so my research and other research has really found that in adolescence there's the sort of like awakening to this nightmare of oh what I thought my life was going to look like going to college having a professional career etc everything that I was told that I could do right because if you work hard enough you can do anything you want right the narrative that that is um, present in schools then gets really shattered what becomes really important at that point is ability to access resources because they are not eligible for federal financial aid. In Illinois, they're not eligible for state financial aid. Um, And so the sources of funding are really private scholarships mainly, uh, maybe some institutional scholarships. Um, And so the help of school staff, school personnel, peer knowledge about resources for undocumented youth become critical link to being able to transition to college.
1: Sí apliqué a, a RUPÉ y me aceptaron y uh, la verdad este fue una gran meta para mí en especial porque tuve una entrevista y fue en inglés y
3: I was accepted into arupe in college and that was a great accomplishment. I feel that it was a great accomplishment because especially since the interview was in English and my English is is not great and I know that I don't give myself enough credit but I know that I worked really hard and this is a great accomplishment for me because even even more so because I know that other students had the same interview and also applied and didn't get in. I'm in the process of getting scholarships. I've already gotten a few, and I know that on, on my own, I can't afford to go. But uh, I, I'm almost there, I think.
2: My work has mainly looked at those who do transition to college. Uh, for them, it, even though they're able to transition and they're able to access, you know, sort of pull together family help, working to pay out of pocket and scholarships, uh, all of those strategies enable them to to. Be in college, but then there's again the constant turmoil of what am I going to do when I graduate? How am I going to pay for the next term? And then managing both working and being in school, which is hard for anyone, right? I was looking at the experiences of these adolescent arrivals, which are referred to as the 1.25 generation, and what happens? What happens as they become adults in the United States?
0: Applying for asylum is not a quick process. It can take years and years and years. In that time, unaccompanied adolescents grow into adults and they start families and become parents to American citizen children. And a situation that was tragic and difficult becomes potentially even more tragic and even more difficult.
2: So when you first come to the United States, you know, the challenges that they face are different than once they become parents. It creates new concerns and new frustrations. So they were, of course, afraid of deportation, right? So what happens if uh, now um, I'm sent back, maybe I'll be okay. Maybe, you know, I can sort of manage, but my child is going to be removed from their country. So the rhetoric is we are trying to protect Americans. Well, which Americans are you trying to protect? Because you're not trying to protect second-generation immigrant Americans because it directly impacts them. We are talking about U.S.-born citizen children who will be forced to live somewhere else or to be separated from their parents.
0: So now that you've heard Gloria's dilemma, let's take a trek back to the beginning. Remember Heinz? the husband who stole the medicine for his dying wife. Did you think he was right or wrong to steal it? And why? Let's spend a moment and consider how Kohlberg might have interpreted your answer. Kohlberg theorized moral development is occurring in six stages. For Kohlberg, it wasn't whether you thought that Heinz was right or wrong in taking the medicine that determined which of the six stages you were in, as much as your rationale for why it was right or wrong. See, if you thought Heinz shouldn't have stolen the medicine because he'd be punished by the law and therefore would be a bad person, that would fall in Coburg's stage one, obedience stage. Toddlers and young children often fall into stage one. If you thought Heinz should have stolen the medicine because he'd be much happier with his wife in his life, or conversely, you thought he shouldn't have stolen the medicine because prison is an unpleasant place and Heinz wouldn't want to be there then that answer would fall into Kohlberg's stage two, a self-interest stage. Stage two is why my six-year-old is so dang sneaky. If you thought Heinz was right in stealing the medicine, because stealing the medicine is what a good husband would do, then that answer would fall into stage three, the conformity stage. Many social institutions rely on the conformity stage. When your parents expect you to behave a certain way because it's what a good son or daughter would do, or if your employer expects you to pick up the slack for someone else because it's what a good employee would do, they're asking you to function in Kohlberg's conformity stage. In my personal opinion, the conformity stage equates to emotional blackmail. But hey, you do you. Now, if your rationale was shaped around the law, let's say you thought Heinz should not have stolen the medicine because stealing is against the law, or you believe that Heinz should have stolen the medicine, but only if he was willing to go to prison for it, then you would be in Kohlberg's fourth stage of moral development, the law and order phase. Law and order is the reasoning behind things like traffic laws and school rules. The law plays an important role in maintaining an orderly society, but laws are not always ethical. Slavery was legal. Jim Crow laws were legal. Japanese internment camps were legal. Laws are made, changed, and broken by humans. They're abstract and only carry as much ethical meaning as we choose to believe they have. Now, if you said Heinz should have stolen the medicine because everyone should have a right to live, or you thought Heinz shouldn't have stolen the medicine because the scientist has a right to making a living from his invention, then you'd be in Kohlberg's fifth stage of development, the human rights phase most adults fall into the law and order phase or the human rights phase. I would venture that 99% of social media comments around immigration, the Second Amendment, the war on drugs, and pretty much any other social issue can be divided into either Kohlberg's law and order rationale or human rights rationale. The reason we can't find common ground is that these perspectives are fundamentally different. However, there's one more option we haven't talked about yet. Kohlberg theorized a stage of moral development that superseded both the law and order phase and the human rights phase. This phase is referred to as the universal ethics phase. In the universal ethics phase, there's no singular right or wrong answer. Right and wrong are acknowledged as subjective and responsive to each individual circumstance. So for instance, Someone in the universal ethics phase might rationale that, in this instance, Heinz was correct to steal the medicine because human life is more valuable than property or money. Or that Heinz should not have stolen the medicine because there may be other individuals with the same disease as his wife who are sicker and need the medicine more. In stage six, we must live in the murky waters of ambiguity and subjectivity. Stage six is not an easy place for most of us to function in. We have to accept that in one situation, an action may be right, but in another circumstance, time or place, the exact same action may be wrong. Stage six places the responsibility for labeling something as right or wrong square on the shoulders of each individual person. It removes the safety of placing blame or reason solely in the hands of someone else, whether that be the law, your mother, or your God. In stage six, we must all stand naked in the mirror of our own morality. Gloria has a second hearing, a second chance to tell her story.
1: Creo que puede ser diferente esta vez, tal vez porque en la otra vez no supe explicarme bien y, y sé que esta vez podré contar totalmente mi historia como realmente es. She shared that this time she feels she can
0: tell her whole story. At the first hearing, she didn't mention the abuse she suffered as a child. She didn't mention the neglect or the horror of how her grandfather
1: died. When I asked why, she said, Porque estamos acostumbrados a quedarnos callados y no hablar de lo que nos pasa.
3: We've grown accustomed to be silent and not speak about what happens to us because we've lived with that all of our lives and we don't understand or don't see the gravity of it. I'm Callie Clark. And I'm Marcela Uribe.
0: And you've been listening to Separate and Unequal, shining a light on education in America. Like us on Facebook. Separate and unequal. Or follow us on Twitter at Shytownad.